Welcome to Movie Maker. I'm Tim Malloy, and today our guest is James Gunn, director of the new film, The Suicide Squad, out Friday. James Gunn is very honest in this interview, so I'm going to be honest with you in keeping with his spirit. This is my favorite interview we've done in a while. I think you're really going to be impressed with how frank and straightforward he is. Gunn broke in by writing films like 1996's Tromeo and Juliet, 2002's Scooby-Doo and its 2004 sequel, and 2004's Dawn of the Dead. Then he directed his own script for 2006's Slither and 2010's Super, and along the way made a series of very funny shorts, including PG Porn, a series that is exactly what it sounds like, and Human Z, a ridiculous, grotesque sitcom parody, and Human Z, a ridiculous, grotesque sitcom parody that he credits with getting him Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy films. He's best known for those very funny sci-fi fantasy blockbusters, and when he was briefly fired from the series, Marvel rival DC recruited him to make the Suicide Squad. If you didn't hear about his firing from the Guardians movies and his rehiring for Guardians Volume 3, coming soon, we'll get into it. Basically, some conservatives on Twitter were upset about Gunn's anti-Trump tweets, and so they dug up some old tasteless jokes that he'd made and that he would subsequently apologize for. To me, when you understand Gunn's tough situation growing up, his jokes seem less like punching down and more like a dark attempt to process a painful childhood. But that's me. Gunn has a very healthy attitude about the entire situation because it led him to Suicide Squad, a movie that he's clearly very excited about. And so are critics. It has a pretty stunning 96 on Rotten Tomatoes. A lot of people are wondering, why are they making another Suicide Squad called The Suicide Squad just a few years after the 2016 film simply titled Suicide Squad? Well, the reception for the 2016 Suicide Squad was not very good, to the point that the film's director, David Iyer, recently tweeted that the studio cut of that 2016 film was, quote, not my movie. He fully supports Gunn's version, The Suicide Squad, in which Margot Robbie, Joel Kinnaman, and Viola Davis return from the original and are joined by Idris Elba, Taiki Waititi, and Gunn stalwarts like his brother Sean Gunn, Michael Rooker, and Sylvester Stallone, all of whom appeared in the Guardians franchise, as well as Jennifer Holland, who is Gunn's longtime partner. Gunn spoke to us while working on his new HBO Max Suicide Squad spin-off series, Peacemaker, which stars John Cena as a super bonehead who violently loves peace. And now, here's James Gunn, director of The Suicide Squad, out Friday, on HBO Max, and in theaters. I'm going to see it in a theater. So the first thing I wanted to say is thank you, because I saw your tweet about your sober anniversary on April 22nd. I quit drinking about nine years ago, and one of the things that kept me drinking for a long time is the fear that nothing would ever be fun again. And I think you're a person who proves that you can be sober and have much more fun than you probably ever did before. Yeah. Well, I I wasn't having fun before I was sober and and, uh, a little bit more now, but uh, yeah, I think that, you know, for me in terms of uh, being a creative person, I think that unlike the beliefs of many, uh, alcohol and drugs actually blocked me from that, the pureness of my imagination, the purity of my imagination. And so I think that if, if anything, in terms of my career, it's been helpful in that. Obviously, in my personal life, my spiritual life, all those things, it's been helpful in a lot of other ways as well. 
Yeah, it seems like you have to kind of always censor yourself when you're doing drugs or drinking because you kind of don't, you're sort of always on guard. You're not sure what you said to people. Sometimes you're sometimes, you know, kind of playing a character who's like a straight character. Um, and I, I think it can be really limiting when you're just a completely sober person. You're kind of free to express whatever you want to because you know you can defend yeah. it after yeah. the fact. Yeah. yeah. You grew up in St. Louis, which is a kind of notoriously straight-laced place. Did you find it to be that way? Did you did you like it? Well, I found out, you know, I grew up in a place called Manchester, Missouri, outside of St. Louis. Um, today, it's very suburban. When I was young, it was more rural uh, suburban. And uh, it was um, parochial in certain ways, very Catholic in both senses of the word. And, uh, and so being an odd little kid from the start, for whatever reasons I was odd, uh, it, it probably was not the most um, conducive atmosphere for, for me, you know, making friends or feeling like I belonged or anything like that. But it did give me an opportunity to, uh, you know, sort of escape into my own little world with comic books and books and starting to draw and write my own comic books and starting to make movies when I was 11. So once that stuff came around, it was, uh, you know, it was life that helped me get through life and it helped me to, you know, develop the skills that, that, you know, allow me to do what I do today and get paid to do what I do today. And I don't know if I would have had those skills had I not been such an outcast as a young child. By the time I got into high school, it was a little different. I was in the punk scene. It was, you know, sex became a part of it. I was, you know, uh, got along better with women in many ways than men anyway. So it was always, uh, by that time, it was, uh, life was a little bit easier. In high school, I met a group of friends. I went to, to school at a place called St. Louis View High, which was in the city. I had to get on a public transport bus and travel for 50 minutes every day from Manchester out to the school. And I found another group of like young filmmakers and people that were sort of interested in the same things I was. And that was a big relief for me. Do you think being an outcast, as you put it, was kind of the best thing for you in a way? I mean, I know it's painful when you're a kid, but you develop so much character. I mean, being completely honest, no. I think that uh, having, you know, having, you know, it, it wasn't only being an outcast. I came, my, my uh, grade school was a, a difficult place because there was a, 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 you know, I've talked about it before, but there was a, priest that was, you know, molesting kids in the class. And it caused sort of a down trickle of just, you know, when I'm 12, kids are having sex and doing drugs, you know, and it's like, who, <laughs> you're not supposed to have that around you at that age. That's something that starts to happen for most people when they're in high school. And for me, it was like this, you know, just completely screwed up place that was just not, a, and it caused a lot of cruelty among the boys in our class. So it was a difficult place because of that. Like and that. I would, you know, I would, I would give it up. I would give it up for a little less money. I would give up that past. Yeah, I, I believe you. Uh, you're really communicative with fans and really sympathetic with fans. Do you think part of that is because of being a fan, being a fan yourself, who sort of looked at this as an escape? Uh, yeah, I mean, I just think it's one of the positive things about social networking, of which there aren't that many positive things. But one of the positive things is being able to communicate with people that you look up to. And I, I was lucky as a kid. I wrote letters to like John Romita, the 
comic book artist and he wrote me back and you know, you know, I, I got Sybil Danning's autograph, if anybody remembers who Sybil Danning is. Um, so it's like, it, you know, I think being, you know, I would write fan letters and stuff, and now it's just being able to pass on that. I think I also, when I was a kid, I met Joe Strummer in a music store looking through music, and I went up to him, and I didn't want to bother him, and I said, you know, Mr. Strummer, I'm such a huge fan. You've affected my life in a big way. Uh, Joe Strummer's the lead singer of The Clash, oh, yeah. one of my favorite bands. And, um, and he, he was nice to me and I started to walk away and then he just walked with me and hung out with me for 10 minutes and 15 minutes in the store and we talked. And I was like, God, that really made a difference in my life. That small act made a difference in my life. And whenever I met anybody who I looked up to, just the act of being present, just you know, looking at somebody and taking in who they are makes a huge difference, you know, because most people don't. Like if you see most people, signing autographs or doing whatever, they're just kind of off in space. But there are people, you know, that, you know, just take that moment to be with that person, just give them that one moment. And I think, you know, by answering questions on social networking sites and being able to talk to people directly, that is my, you know, way of, of being able to do that. Did you use a Clash song in Super? I was just watching Super. I didn't, no, no, I used up. <laughs> There's a song by a band called Monster in there. They're one of my favorite Swedish bands called God Knows My Name, which they have a very much of a Clash sound. They're a very much of the Swedish version of the Clash. Nice. Sorry to be misguided about that. So Super is a fantastic movie. Really, really enjoyed it. But I don't quite get how you get to go from Super to Guardians. It's such a huge jump. And you blew Guardians out of the, out of the water. I mean defied all expectations you took kind of like some of the least popular marvel characters and made one of the best marvel movies how did you sell marvel on doing that i mean i i you know i don't know if i sold marvel marvel came to me initially so they i had talked to kevin feige like back when the hulk was coming out after slither you know um back when iron man was first coming out and you know it was uh we he knew that i was I, I knew Marvel. I know more about the characters than most of the people at Marvel. <laughs> I know more about DC too. It's like, I, I love comic books. I always did love comic books. Yeah. Kind of sort of sorts. And so uh, I understood comics, but also I really, you know, I, I thought that was sort of a dream job. I don't know why they came to me. I think they took a risk. They always liked me. Even weirder is, is I did a, a short for uh, Xbox originally got kicked off Xbox because it was too messed up called Human Z, um, <laughs> which I don't even know if you can find on YouTube anymore. And it's, uh, and it, they love Human Z, you know? So it's, it's not only super, it's even the weirder stuff. It's Human Z and PG porn and all of the different things I had done. But I was incredibly fortunate because I had produced, you know, co-produced the Scooby-Doo movies. I had been around big budget movies. I knew a lot about visual effects, like, um, one of the great uh, excitements about doing the Suicide Squad is being reunited with Chuck Rogan, who produced the, the uh, Scooby-Doo movies. And Chuck was the guy who really took me under his wing on Scooby-Doo 2 and said, I want you to direct the next movie, you know? And so I went on and I really involved myself in the production and learning everything I had to know about visual effects, because I think I already understood a lot about how to shoot a movie. Um, I had been studying that since I was a kid. So then I got to learn everything about visual effects that I possibly could. And by the time I got to Guardians, 
people thought of me as a lower budget filmmaker, but I had a lot of visual effects in Slither and a lot of visual effects in Super for, you know, it's a $3 million movie, but we did a lot with it. So yeah. I, I had a, a pretty, you know, I had, you know, 15 years of filmmaking experience behind me and a lot of practical knowledge that made me completely ready to take on Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, my, if I look back at Guardians, I was talking to my uh, partner the other night because we were talking, you know, what is my biggest regret with Guardians was that I still had too much of a producer hat on. I, you know, I made the trauma movies, I made Super, I made Slither, and we were in such a rush to be able to get our shots for the day. I mean, we were doing 54 setups a day with one camera on Super, which is unheard of. Um, and it's just rushing, 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 rushing. And that speed became a part of everything I was doing, that panic, that anxiety that I had on set all day long. And I retained that through Guardians 1 um, and through Guardians 2 even, really, to some degree um, of, of getting my stuff done. But I really needed to learn how to concentrate more on just relaxing and getting everything right. Um, and, uh, and, and that anxiety, I think, is something that uh, is, is my, one of my few regrets from that, that time. I mean, the movies definitely work, but something I've asked a lot of directors in your position who've done small movies and big movies, and there doesn't seem to be any consensus. Do you find it easier to make a lower budget movie, like lower budget being million, two million, or a really expensive movie? It's more easier to, I mean, listen, the, there's things that are more difficult about lower budget movies and more difficult about large budget movies. Large budget movies, the difficult thing is simply for me, the only, it's more complex, it's more complex, right? When you're doing uh, uh, the Suicide Squad or Guardians of the Galaxy, you have all, I mean, just so many unbelievable components of things that you have to remember about the action sequences and the extras and the visual effects and the special effects and big, huge scenes that you have to really, you know, piece a lot of stuff together. It, it is more difficult in that respect. There's a lot more components. There's a lot more people that you need to be in charge of. Um, and then the other thing about a larger budget movie that's different is it's just, you have to pace yourself because you're, you're, you're you know, you're shooting for at least five months on these larger budget movies for the most part, about five months. And so that's a lot different than shooting for 24 days on Super. That's, a big, big difference. Um, however, the sprint of super to me is way more difficult. You know, the, the anxiety of that, you know, you, you have on, a, on these big budget movies, I'm really able to have my pick of, you know, who my visual effects supervisor is, who my assistant director is, who my production designer is, who my costume designer is. And you're having these just consummate professionals surround you that you're able to, to, to work with, to collaborate with, and that makes it a lot easier. So there's a lot more stuff I'm able to turn over in uh, a big budget movie. So overall for me, I find a large budget movie easier. There's a funniness to all of your movies that just feels very assured and relaxed. And I watched one of your, one of the old PG porns where you're playing yourself as a director who's just absolutely losing it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Is I that I boom, yeah, <laughs> down to it, yeah. yeah. Was there any truth to that? Or was that kind of you venting how you wish you could act or your anxiety? I mean, I really, you know, I've been aware, you know, 
I, I have a temper. I definitely have a temper. And I've had to, you know, learn over the years that, you know, when I started out in New York City, nobody would listen to me. And part of the culture of making movies in New York City were these, it was incredibly angry sets with people screaming. And I learned early on that, oh, I'm either going to be screamed at or scream at. And I'm like, I know which side I'm choosing. I'm choosing the scream at side. So it's, uh, you know, there was this, I was, it's sort of this unhealthy atmosphere to be raised in. And then I came to LA where things are a little bit more mellow and had to relearn some of my bad habits. And then as time has gone on, I've also learned like, I don't need to raise my voice because people listen now to what I say. Like everything I say, like one of my issues is that people take what I say too seriously, if that makes any sense. I'll say to an editor, hey, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe uh, this isn't the best, you know, place for the shot. And that becomes then, oh, absolutely. We have to do everything we can to move heaven and earth to move the shot. But if, when I say maybe, I mean, maybe that's what I mean. Maybe it's not, maybe it is though. And so people listen to me now. So you, I, I've had to learn to, uh, to, to sort of relearn that bad habits of my misspent youth of, of raising my voice. And I'm not, I'm not a bully. I'd never call people names. I never, uh, you know, pick on people, but I've raised my voice in the past. And I, it's, it's something that I've, I've tried to curtail in, in myself. This might be a totally generational thing because I'm 45 and I can definitely remember getting yelled at on jobs and it not being a big deal. And Spike Lee, who we talked to a while ago said he thinks there is a place, again, a New York filmmaker uh, predominantly, but says he does think there's a place for yelling on sets. Like sometimes you have to snap people to attention and get them serious about what they're doing. So. Well, maybe he's right. I don't know. I think uh, there's times when you need to be very, very clear and very stern and you need to set boundaries like you do with anything. Does that mean you need to scream? Maybe even being loud, but scream or yell? I, I don't know if you need. I mean, yes, of course, there's a time if somebody's standing in front of a car and a car is coming, you have right. to yell, get the fuck out of the way. But it's like, other than that, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. I have found that I don't need to yell anymore. People listen to me. That, that it's the people are scared enough of me as it is that <laughs> I have no reason to scream at people because they already, you know, take what I say seriously. And if they don't, then I don't work with them. Yeah. <laughs> when did that start? When did people just start taking you not only seriously, but sometimes too seriously? Well, whenever it started, I didn't notice it, but I did have someone who I was working with one time sit down and say, dude, you really don't need to get so upset about things because everybody listens to what you say. And at the end of the day, they're going to do what you want. So you don't need to be so forceful with your opinions, you know? Yeah. And it was then I realized, God, I just, you know, I still think of myself as at that point, that was about, you know, three years ago. I still think of myself as the guy that was like striving to be noticed in New York, working on a movie set and trying to like dominate, frankly, you know, trying to be the alpha dog. And, uh, and I just don't need to do that. But you must've come into Guardians too, which is a few years ago as a giant. I mean, they saw what you did on Guardians one. They must've been like, this guy's a genius, do whatever he says. They, they were like that, but that doesn't mean I perceived the world in that way, you know? Yeah. Guardians 2 for me was like a, the most difficult of the movies to make, you know? And I, and you know, uh, you know, yeah, it was, it was, it was in many, 
it, there was a lot of issues going on in my life at that time. So I don't, uh, you know, I, it was, it was just a more dizzying experience making guardians too. You know, it feels like a really nostalgic movie to me. Um, obviously there's flashbacks to young Kurt Russell and everything like that. Yeah. Um, but I've been thinking a lot about nostalgia. I think, it, I think it's in all of your movies. I think have a lot of nostalgia. Yeah. But I've been thinking about it a lot because at one point it seemed like nostalgia was kind of a thing that us weirdos like um, always living in the past or something. And then the last year or two, when we had nothing else to do, but look to the past because the present was pretty much sitting inside. It seems like yeah. everybody got nostalgic. And then I started thinking about that Victorian idea of nostalgia as a sickness. Have, has your feeling about nostalgia changed at all recently? I, I don't think it has. I think that if you, you know, I mean, there are things I, you know, obviously I love a lot of things, you know, and I think that in some ways, for instance, pop music, one of the beautiful things about say Spotify and, and you know, that is that we aren't limited to listening to just what's brand new, you know? And when we grew up, it was all like, what's brand new? What's that new thing? What's that new sound? Because whatever happened yesterday is over and done. And I'm just into whatever's new. I remember like the Jesus and Mary chain coming out. I'm like, oh, okay, now the sex pistols aren't as cool. It's like all about the Jesus and Mary chain, you know? And it's it's not, that isn't like, I think there's a great place to, to you know, it's, with movies even more so. I mean, I, so many young filmmakers I know don't watch the classic films and I'm like, that is insane. You've never seen Touch of Evil. You've never seen Citizen Kane. You've never seen, you know, any of any of the, you know, any of these old films. And that is unhealthy to me. That's not having a respect for the roots of where you came from. You should go back to the beginning. If you're writing comic books, you should go back to the beginning of when they started and see what they're like. You need to know where the stuff grew from to really take it organically into yourself. So I don't think of that as nostalgia. I think that is a love of the art form. But I do think that there is a fetishization of nostalgia that can be harmful. And I do think that Peter Quill in the Guardians movies suffers from that. And that is in some ways, there's an unhealthiness to that with himself, you know? Why did you he has commodified the planet Earth, you know, is what Peter Quill has done. Peter Quill has taken the planet Earth and turned it into John Stamos and Starsky and Hutch action figures and Alf stickers, you know, because he doesn't want to face what Earth really is to him, which is the death of his mother and the fact that he left his grandfather and whole family there and never returned, except for once during the during the Infinity Saga, in which he went back for two seconds and then got off as quickly as he could. So I think that he uses some of that nostalgia as a protection against what Earth really means to him. Yeah. Um. This isn't a good transition, but I thought, like a lot of people thought, you got a completely raw deal with the whole Twitter situation a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was really unfair. And it was really people just weaponizing fake offense to make an example of you. When that happened, were you crushed by it? Were you angry? Were you, or did you just kind of get strategic and go, what do I do next? I did all those things. I did all of those things. I was emotionally, uh, emotionally, affected obviously it, at the very beginning emotionally devastated and uh um i was hurt by it uh but i also um have both my reason and my faith as great tools in my you know in my tool shed and and use those things to really say well 
this is the situation as it is. How do I best approach it? Um, what, what, what do I do? And, and where are the places, listen, it may not all be my fault, but some of it's my fault. Where are the places that I need to take accountability and look at myself and see, you know, see what I, 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 I could have done differently and ways in which maybe I was being callous towards others, which I was. So, um, so I did that and obviously everything has turned out okay. You know, I mean, it's, uh, I was, and, and listen, I needed it. Like, I'll tell you, I really just needed it. I was getting too swept up in um, everything, like the business, the money, the this, the that, the like, oh, you know, bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was like, what do I really care about? And number one, the, the main thing I got out of the situation was I have, for whatever reasons, because of my own mental issues, I have a problem taking love in. I have a problem seeing how other people care about me. And part of what I have always done is tried to get attention and be famous and be great, quote unquote, so that people will love me. And I realized in that moment, whereas where I was at my least great, I was at my least genius, I was at my worst that I got, I felt loved for the first time. I felt loved from my partner, Jen. I felt loved from my mom and dad who were beautiful. I felt love from my brothers, from my sister, who was a huge friend. And I, from my fellow, my guard, you know, the guardians, you know, from, from Dave Batista and Chris Pratt, and, you know, Palm and Karen and Zoe from, uh, you know, Vin Diesel. I mean, it just, Sly Stallone, all these people gave me this, uh, you know, love yeah. and showed me love where I just didn't have an experience. So in that way, that was a great day for me when that stuff happened because I was able to experience that love. And then the other thing is it was like, why am I making movies? Am I making movies to get attention? Am I getting making movies so that people will like me? And I'm like, yeah, in part I am. But I thought that's not why I want to make movies. What, what do I enjoy? Cause I don't enjoy that part. That's just unfulfilling. You know, I don't like reading about myself negative or positive because it just, it just keeps, I don't need all that. What I love is creating. I love creating stories. I love molding characters. I love working with actors. I love working with camera operators. I love shooting a film. I love the geometry of putting shots together. I love the creative, the creativity of filmmaking. And so it put me into a wonderful place that I hadn't been in for a long time. And that's what led to the Suicide Squad and choosing that project and, and making that movie. Yeah, and I wanna talk about nothing but that from here on out, except for one thing. And I hope I'm not putting too much myself in this. I mean, I, I think you're Catholic, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's this idea in Catholicism that every, and a lot of people don't like this idea, but that everybody's a sinner and none of us are perfect and we all make mistakes and that's why we all need forgiveness. And that just seems to be missing in the social media fights where there's this joke that as soon as you go after someone, someone will find something in your you know, Twitter feed and you'll also be taken down. But that's true of all of us because all of us have done something wrong at some point in our lives and we're all flawed. Absolutely. And there's a big difference between there's, you know, listen, I mean, there are certain people that have been canceled that I don't want to see their movies. You know, if you have like tried to molest 14 year old kids, then I don't want to see your, I don't want to see your freaking movies. Like, I don't care. I just yep. don't. 
you know, and, I, and maybe that's not separating the art from the artist, but it ruins me seeing your stupid face on screen. I don't want to see it. So I don't care if you're canceled. You know, I think there are certain things. I think what Harvey Weinstein did was disgusting. You know, I don't, I don't want to see a Harvey Weinstein movie. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I will go back and watch this movie. I will watch, you know, you do. movies or whatever, but uh, I can put it aside, I guess. I guess that's not a fair thing. So sometimes I can put it, but whatever the case, there are, there are things that are kind of a new so reprehensible yeah. that I don't want to, I don't want to work with those people, you know, yeah. but also there are other things that people don't pay attention to, which is every time I make a movie, we do a, a, a background check on the people, not, not with private eyes, but by calling people they've worked with. Like I, there is no amount of fame or whatever that is worth working with an asshole. Like, I just don't want to have to do it. I want a creative partner who's going to be, to be good at what they do and put their all into it and, and be my, you know, be my partner. Yeah. And so I, I, that's like, that stuff is, there's a lot of people in this industry I won't work with, not because they've done anything morally reprehensible offstage, but simply because I don't want to deal with a jerk. Yeah. So DC comes to you, they offer you Superman, as I understand it, you not no, no, not exactly. No, no, that's not exactly what happened. Okay. DC, the first thing they brought up was Superman. They're okay. like, what does James want to do? Does he want to do Superman? Does he want to do something else? You know? And uh, and one of the first things, one of the, probably the second thing they brought up was Suicide Squad and doing whatever was next with that. Um, but they basically said, what does he want to do? Anything he wants to do that, you know, it's it, we're open. Yeah. And um and so I played with a couple of different ideas and, uh, um, you know, started whittling down what my potential ideas were. And I felt like this was a really healthy thing for me because I've taken on gigs in the past where somebody, you know, where, where I have an idea for something and then I go pitch it and then I sell it. And then the idea excites me, but the actual story doesn't excite me that much. It's like, and I'm like, oh, this is just a great high concept. And I don't know how it's a three-act story. Um, and with, with these different projects that I started working on, I actually just took a month or so. And every day I worked on a different project. And one of the things that I worked on um, was the Suicide Squad. And that became the thing that just excited. I love the story the most. And I just thought it was something that I could be completely have fun with doing a completely unhinged way and uh and uh and it, it was exciting to me and i thought it would be just the most entertaining thing i'd ever made so that's what i went for why are they so fun i mean i always loved it when i was a kid i think that they were the bad guys was cool to me the fact that they were potentially yeah. doomed was cool to me and that i didn't really know who they were yeah well i love i i i love uh, first of all, John Ostrander created, he didn't create, the original Suicide Squad was a totally different story, the name the Suicide Squad, but he created the idea of the Dirty Dozen meets Z-grade supervillains who they sent out on Black Ops missions to different parts of the world, sometimes very grounded stories, sometimes with science fiction elements or occult elements or whatever. And so uh, his stories were really good. And so I love the basis of that. I love old war movies. I love old war caper films like The Dirty Dozen or Eagles Dare. And so being able to put super <laughs> crappy supervillains in those situations was a lot of fun to me. So it was, it was me being able to revive a genre, the war caper film that really 
hasn't been around. That was an incredibly popular genre back in the late sixties. Um, and also to just put a different spin on superheroes. And because they're supervillains, you really don't know what's gonna happen. Like when you see the Guardians, it's like the first movie, they're kind of bad guys, but they're, they're, they're rogues, they're rakish, but they really aren't like you, you know, there's a scene in, in the bar where, where Rocket is drunk and it's a, like one of my favorite scenes and Drax is there and Rocket is going on about his terrible life and he's threatening to shoot Drax in the face. But I don't think anyone in the audience sees that we're actually going to shoot Drax in the face and murder him in that scene. Um, and in the Suicide Squad, not only can that happen, that stuff does happen. So, you know, the characters, some are good, some are bad, some aren't so, so bad, you know, they're really just human and uh, they're as fallible as we are. And they aren't, some of them might be sort of heroic at their core. Um, but we get to see that develop and those stories unfold and it, it gives it a, a complexity that is actually fun and it's not a complexity for the sake of being complex but for the sake of you know just telling the best story i can what do you think makes a crappy supervillain crappy like they well, just don't get a following I mean, listen, I mean, naming yourself Polka Dot Man, you've got to have a problem with you. And like, oh, you know, like the first time he makes his costume, like, I don't know if he makes it or if he gets, there's probably guys you go to, the high-end guys who make superhero costumes, the low-end guys, and he probably goes to the low-end guy to make him a Polka Dot costume. And he puts on that and he looks in the mirror and he's like, that is cool. I'm the next Batman. That's what he thinks, right? Because Polka Dot Man thinks he's going to be hero um so it's like uh that's i think that it's the sort of um you know lack of self-awareness which is sort of beautiful you know because it's it's like it's like a lot of us a lot of these guys are doing things they think are cool but they actually i mean peacemaker and polka dot man and javelin those guys think they're super cool but they're all kind of goofy you know blood sport is scary i mean he's mean <laughs> he's like he is a Idris Elba's character. He has a creepy costume and uh, he kills people for money and you see him and, and I would not want that guy to be coming through my house with this weird sort of skeleton face. But um, so yeah, they're all different sorts of things. And I, and I would also say, yeah, Bloodsport's a crappy super, he, now he's, he's an unknown supervillain, but in the movie, he's not, he's not crappy. He's pretty good at what he does. But so, you know, so is Peacemaker. Peacemaker is great at what he does. He's just an idiot. <laughs> I think Harley Quinn is legitimately cool. Oh, yeah. She's the best. I mean, by, to me, to my mind, you know, Batman's probably the greatest DC character and Harley Quinn's the second greatest DC character. Um, and uh, I, I love the character. I love the way that uh, Paul Dini wrote her originally. Yeah. And I thought this was an opportunity to take the character and take the essence of who I thought that character was from the early animated films and the early comics um, and really just let her live in her full all out lunacy um, and power and, uh, and, and give Margot Robbie, who I'm a huge fan of. And I was a huge fan of before I made the movie. I'm an even bigger fan of her since working with her um, and give her a chance to really you know, stretch her wings a bit with the character. So I think we get to see a lot of facets of Harley that, and simultaneously see some facets of her that maybe we haven't seen before, which which we do get the chance to see. So it's, she was a lot of fun to write. 
we interviewed Margot Robbie for, I guess, about seven issues ago. And she seems like, I know people say this about everybody, but she seems like an absolute team player who would like rather. She's actually very different. Like if, if you ask me what's so unique about Margot Robbie as, as, a, as a movie star, um, is that mo most movie stars do have a streak of either narcissism, like a crazy narcissism, or a really ambitious, just like alpha fight mentality, male, female, whatever. They just really are pushing all the time and controlling about things. And that is not Margot. Margot is 100% an actor first. Um, she cares a lot about what she does. We talk a lot about what she does, but she does not have that need to prove herself. It's a sort of quiet confidence and seemingly, I don't know the inside of her brain, but sort of a, a, a happiness with herself as who she is. She doesn't need to prove herself and she doesn't have this constantly like domineering thing that some, some people do, yeah. like me. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not like that second type. I, I probably am. So. Oh, you finished this before COVID, right? Yes. We finished shooting right before COVID. So I came back from shooting in Panama um, and came back to LA to do editing and had about four days before quarantine began. So. Okay. I rarely hear Panama as a place where people shot and I've been yeah. to Panama and I love it. What was it like? I mean, why, why Panama? First of all, I know you knew. Well, I, you know, the, the script takes place in a fictional uh, Island off the coast of Argentina called Corto Maltese. Mm -hmm. It was created by Frank Miller actually, but it was never really uh, investigated. So we kind of created what the culture of Corto Maltese was, which was a lot of fun. So it ends up being a mixture of a lot of different Latin cultures. <laughs> also because we have a Brazilian, uh, a Mexican, a, Span a Spaniard and a Portuguese person, you know, playing some of like the main characters. Um, but it's uh, with all sorts of different accents and things. But it, it, so it was fun creating this place, but I needed a, a look for it. And I really wrote it originally thinking about Havana, which is a city I've been to and I like a lot. Um, and so I thought of it being like Havana. So it was this sort of um, decrepit, sort of fading, but very colorful place. And uh, Havana became, didn't work out for a number of reasons, um, but, Panama worked out well. And we looked at other places too, but they didn't really kind of have what we needed. We considered Puerto Rico, we considered, you know, uh, Argentina and different places, but uh, it really did seem like Panama was the best, but especially a city called Cologne, um, which is a city that's just sort of been abandoned by the country. And it, it is really just falling apart. Um, it's most of the squatters live there. Uh, it, it, but it's still like this incredibly brightly colorful place. And so the, the central stuff in Panama happened there. There's also stuff that happens around a palace, which is in the central square of Panama City, which is a beautiful place. But the, a lot of the action happens in Cologne, which is, um, which is you know, it, these wonderful people live there, but it is, it's a, it's a, it, it was a heart wrenching at times to be there. There's a lot of, people that don't have much. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of stray animals. Our crew brought home quite a few animals. Um, 
and um, uh, you know, it's uh, it's a it's a it's a place that I it has a, a lot of history, but it's it's not on its best times right now. Yeah. Did you did you find a place there where you sort of went to I don't know meditate reflect just kind of get away from it all because it is a it is a very beautiful country. Yes. Uh, well, we we stayed in these sort of brand new um, hotels that were outside of Cologne, um, and there was a big forest there. Uh, it was a, with a with a with a lake, and a bunch of monkeys were there. <laughs> so it's all these monkeys all over the place, and so I would just go hang out in there. But we were pretty busy, so it's not like I had that much time to reflect on anything. That was James Gunn. If you enjoyed that, I encourage you to check out our social feeds at Movie Maker Mag, where you can check out our digital cover of James Gunn for our summer issue. I would also invite you to visit moviemaker.com or pick up the latest issue of Movie Maker Magazine, where I wrote a very lengthy story about James Gunn entitled, James Gunn Doesn't Need to Shout. And if you like this podcast, feel free to throw us a review, to subscribe, or best of all, tell a friend, hey, I think you would like this. Thanks a lot. I'm Tim Malloy from Movie Maker. Suicide Squad, <laughs> I'm sorry, The Suicide Squad is in theaters and HBO Max on Friday, but you probably already know that. See you back here real soon. <laughs>